Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? It's been a while since uh, Becky and I have been here. We uh, had a couple weeks of vacation and then a couple weeks of a retreat conference the last two weeks. Uh, so we're coming back all rejuvenated and refreshed and rested and excited about uh, what God's doing here and about being back with you all. Before we uh, get into our sermon, though, I wanted to tell you a joke I heard on this retreat. I uh, thought about trying to work it into my sermon, but I didn't want to work that hard. And uh, I wanted to do it soon because I knew I'd forget it if I didn't. The uh, joke's actually about uh, losing your memory because uh, this came up when I was having a discussion with these people about what a terrible memory I have because I have a horrible memory. This one guy was telling about uh, this couple, this husband and wife, who went to one of those memory seminars. And uh, they were really excited about it. And they were telling a friend of theirs how neat it was, how helpful it was, how the guy that led it gave them all of these really useful ideas on how to remember things. So the friend said, well, well, what was the name of the guy that uh, led the seminar? So the guy says, okay, okay. Now what is that uh, flower, the red flower, a lot of the petals, the long stem, Thorns on it. He said, a rose? See, yeah, that's a rose. Rose, Rose, what was the name of the guy who led the seminar? (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Uh, This morning, uh, we're going to be starting a new series uh, in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's often called the neglected part of your Bibles. It's usually the clean part of your Bible. If that's true, if it's neglected, the part we're going to be studying this summer is doubly neglected. We're going to be looking at the minor prophets. Now, I'm kind of wondering how many of you could name all 12 minor prophets. There's a couple of you Sunday school graduates who could. I I don't think I could have until I started this study. I could have got most of them, but definitely not in order. In fact, part of the reason that I wanted to do this study was because there are a lot of these books in here that I honestly don't know what they're about. And I was excited about having the opportunity to study them with you, explore them with you, learn together with you what this part of God's Word has to say. I realize the reason they're called minor prophets isn't because they're kind of junior prophets, kind of lightweights that didn't have as much to say as the, the major prophets. The major, the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets is that the uh, the, the major prophets uh, wrote much longer books. Um, you know, Isaiah and, and uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Daniel. These are big books, 66 chapters, 52 chapters, 48 chapters. Uh, even Daniel, which is the smallest of the major uh, prophets, is 12 long chapters. And the minor prophets are smaller. Some have six, so eight. There's one with even 14, but they're little chapters. It's still smaller than Daniel. But the majority of them are even smaller. They have one or two or three chapters in them. It's not that they had less to say. It's just that they were a lot quicker about saying it than the major prophets. And what I want to do for the next eight weeks is we're not going to get through all of them, but pick and choose. And we're not going to get into a lot of detail. We're going to take big chunks. We're we're going to to look at whole books at a time, which means we're going to be skimming the top, getting the the main theme, the main message. 
but hopefully we're going to see what these books have to offer and learn a little bit about what God wants to say to us through these. This morning we're going to look at the book of Joel. So now turn to the clean portions of your Bible. The minor prophets are tucked in right before the New Testament. If you go to the middle, if you go to Psalms and you head right toward the New Testament, you pass the Proverbs, all of the poetry, go past the major prophets. When you get to Daniel, slow down. The next book is Hosea, and right after that is Joel. If you get to Amos or Micah or anything that starts with a Z, you've gone too far. Go back. Now, one of the problems with studying the prophets, there's a lot of problems with studying the prophets. They're hard books to understand. One of the problems is they were written a long time ago, at least 24, 2,500 years ago. And each one is written in its own style. And those styles are difficult for those of us with Western minds uh, trained on Gilligan's Island and and Robert Ludlum to to really understand the the, the logic, the styles. Top of that, there's the, the fact that in these prophecies, God is doing a variety of things. He's talking to a very specific historic situation. But then he is using that as an opportunity to talk more about who he is and what he does in all situations like that. And then he uses that to to talk about how he's going to act in the future. You really have, in most prophecies, four applications. You have the application to the immediate circumstances of the prophet. You have the general application to how who God is and how life works and how we relate to God in the midst of it. Then you have the application to Jesus Christ and His coming and the salvation that He brought. Then you have the application to the final days when God is coming in final judgment. And it gets real confusing between these sometimes as you're trying to study through. But part of our challenge is to get in there and to sort out the, uh, the historic situation, to, to work through the style, and to realize that those four uh, applications are there, and to take whichever we are going to focus on. This morning, what we're going to be focusing on is the truths in Joel that tell us about who God is, what He's like, how we relate to Him, the ongoing, everlasting truths of who God is, what He's like how he wants to relate to us. Joel is kind of a a, a funny book. We don't know who Joel is. We don't know when he wrote. In fact, there's a big controversy over whether he wrote in the 5th century B.C. or the 9th century B.C. Uh, Personally, I think it was probably the 9th century, but I don't think it, it matters a whole lot. Either one of those is a long time ago. And the historic situation that he was writing about was this terrible invasion of locusts, a locust plague. And before you check out on me and nod off and wonder why you came here to hear about a bunch of grasshoppers that went on a rampage 3,000 years ago, let me tell you, as you begin to understand the message of this book, you'll discover that it could have been written this morning and that it's talking straight you. So bear with me. Like I said, it's written about a locust plague. Locusts are a lot like grasshoppers. The the difference between locusts and grasshoppers. Grasshoppers tend to be a little smaller 
And in general, a grasshopper just kind of hops around in the same place by himself looking for food. Locusts, which tend to be a little bigger, travel in huge swarms. And they move through an area and just wipe everything out in their path. In many parts of the world today, uh, locust swarms are still a big problem. Locusts uh, lay their eggs underground. And those eggs can sit there dormant for years if there's not enough moisture in the ground. You see, when there's moisture in the ground, then the eggs know to hatch because that means that something's growing up above, that the crops are growing because there's enough moisture for the crops to grow. And when the grounds get moist, the eggs hatch, the uh, locusts crawl out and start eating. Let me read a real brief section of an article in National Geographic that was describing a locust plague in Africa. It says, They lay their eggs in vast numbers. It was calculated that 60,000 could come from the eggs laid in a single 39-square-inch section of ground. That's smaller than this piece of paper here. And that is after factoring a 30% loss rate. Once hatched, the new brood started crawling across the ground at a rate of 500 feet per day, devouring every scrap of vegetation in their path. Then, great clouds of locusts began flying so that attention was drawn to them by the sudden darkening of the bright sunshine, turning it as dark as night. There have been single locust swarms recorded that were covering 2,000 square miles. One single swarm. Nick Armstrong was telling me how uh, when he was in West Africa, hearing stories uh, of locust swarms that that just literally blacked out the sky. You couldn't see. It was like it was nighttime. And you couldn't travel. Uh, The the roads became so slick with squished locusts that a car couldn't stay on the road. You couldn't even walk on the roads. It was too slippery. Everything was wiped out. Nothing is left standing. Not a single blade of grass. The trees are stripped from their... uh, The bark is stripped from the trees. Everything is gone. Now, uh, these locust infestations were a a regular occurrence back in the Middle East, back when Joel was writing this. They came, they went. People learned to live with it. People adjusted. People, People got over it, worked through it. But apparently there was one year that it was particularly bad. It was not survivable. It was a bad one. And that's what Joel's writing about. Let's start with Joel 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Again, we don't know who Joel is. We uh, do know that his name means Yahweh is God. Yah-el. Joel. Yahweh is God. God is God. Reminds me of a line from the uh, movie Rudy. I don't know how many of you have seen that. It's about a young boy who wants to play football at Notre Dame. At one point he's talking to this uh, older priest and the priest is telling him what he's learned in life. He said, I've learned two things in life. One, that there is a God. Two, that I'm not him. See, God is God. And then that's really part of the message, part of the power of this book, that God is God. Again, we don't know who this Joel is. We don't know who his father Pithoel is. But really, in this case, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that Joel wrote down for us what God told him. Verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? 
Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. He says, this is a bad one. This is a big one. This is not your normal, survivable, class three locust infestation. This is the big one. This is a nine on the Richter scale. This wiped out everything. This is one to, to tell your grandkids about the great, the, you know, the great locust plague of 54 or whatever. Tell your grandkids about this one if you live through it. Verse uh, 5 says, Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion and fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Joel compares the devastation to the devastation felt by a young bride whose husband dies on their wedding day. I mean, it's devastating. All of her dreams, all of her hopes, all of her plans for the future, they're gone, they're dead. The world is suddenly black. There's no hope. There's nothing to look forward to. There's nothing to live for. She's devastated. You've got to realize these people were devastated. This wiped everything out. They didn't have a bite of food. They had nothing to feed their cattle. They had nothing to plant. Everything's gone. They're devastated. Skip over to verse 11. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up. And the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate and the palm and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. See, this is an enormous natural disaster. But what are we really talking about here? Listen to the rest of verse 12. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. Aha. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about joy here. Now, the historic situation was a literal locust plague. But this isn't just about how to survive a locust infestation. This book is about how to survive when the joy has been eaten out of your life, when it's all gone and it feels like there's nothing left. You see, food and wine are, are, are symbols, are pictures of joy and gladness. Verse 16 says, Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. This book is about what to do when the joy has been eaten out of your life. When there's no hope left. Quite honestly, most of us live lives on on two tracks. We've got our relationship with God, and that's very valuable. It's important to us. Then we've got our everyday life. And these two tracks run parallel, but often they never touch. um, Lloyd Ogilvie describes this like this. He says, Our relationship with God often lacks vitality because of either benign neglect or willful independence or unconfessed sin. 
On the other track is the reality of daily life with its mixture of routines, pressures, and busyness pursued with little thought of God. Sometimes this track gets littered with disappointments, frustrations, and conflicts. And you see, those disappointments and frustrations and conflicts, these are the little annual locust plagues that we learn to live with and live through. Now, they're no fun. They do rob us of our joy. But we get over it. We bounce back. We move on. And then something comes along that's too big. We don't bounce. We're crushed. We're devastated. We get wiped out. All the joy, all the hope is gone. Now take a, a marriage, for instance. You know, it's got its ups and downs, and you got your squabbles and your disagreements, and you work through them. You get over it. You move on. And then suddenly, your spouse comes in and announces that it's over. They're leaving you. And that's devastating. That's not one of the little locust plagues. That's the big one. Or maybe uh, take a guy who's been working at the same job all of his life, and he's survived reorganizations and cutbacks and financial strain and difficulty, and, and uh, uh, you know things have gone up and down, and he's weathered it all. But now in his early 50s, he's laid off. And he, he's never faced locusts like this before. You've had headaches. They come and they go. But this time the doctor tells you it's cancer. The high school girl who's been riding the ups and downs of adolescence, something happens and it crushes her. And the joy is gone and she can't face another day. She literally cannot face another day. Or the, the man in midlife who maybe there's no external crisis he just wakes up and realizes the locusts have been eating his joy year after year, and it's gone. There's nothing left. You can't go on living like this. See, these are the locusts we're talking about. When the joy is gone from life, what can you do? Well, let's turn back to uh, Joel. Unfortunately, we still have some bad news before we get to the answer. Look at verse 13. Joel says, Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. The grain offerings and the drink offerings are withheld. Now, of all of the disasters, of all of the implications of this locust plague, this is the one that bugs Joel the most. This is the one that really concerns him. He comes back to this over and over throughout the whole book. This is the big deal. Why? Well, because the grain offering and the drink offering were the way you maintained your walk with God. You kept your relationship with God open. Now that's gone. There's no way back to God. The access to God seems to be closed. In the midst of your crisis, in the midst of your emptiness, you turn to God, you try reading your Bible. The words just kind of sit there. They don't penetrate your mind. They don't penetrate your heart. Or or you, you pray. It just seems to bounce off the walls. You can't keep your mind focused. You come to church. That doesn't bring any relief. It doesn't seem... To cut it. So you've got nothing 
to give back to God. You're too empty even for that. But it gets worse. Starting with verse 2 of chapter 2, Joel describes this locust plague, this, this invasion again. He uses figurative language like an army attacking. Let me read that to you. There's a real zinger at the end. Starting with verse 2, he says, uh, where am I? There it is. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like the dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over mountaintops like crackling fire, consuming stubble, like mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the walls. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. Now here comes this this army of locusts, this invincible, invading army. They're unstoppable. They come through the doors, they come over the walls, they come in the windows. There's no way to stop them. They they blot out the, the sky, the sun. They destroy everything in your life. They turn the Garden of Eden, the joys in your life, into an empty wasteland. It's terrible. It's horrible. It's overwhelming. But here's the zinger. Who do you see at the head of that army? Who is leading that army? Verse 11. The Lord thunders at the head of His army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey His command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? You see, God is at the head of that destroying army. It's His army. It's obeying His commands. God is destroying our lives. And this is theological meltdown here. How do you deal with that? Joel says this is, this is dreadful. The word means terrifying. Who can endure it? How do we deal with that? How could God do this? I thought God was love. Well, He is. God is love. God is good. God is pure and there is no evil in Him. Let me lay a little theology on you here. God is not the originator of evil, of damage, of hurt, of disease, of uh, uh, of disaster, destruction. These things are a result of the enemy, Satan's malicious hatred toward us, and the result of the imbalance that we have brought into this world through our own sins. See, we and Satan are responsible for, For damage and harm and destruction and and, and illness. But God is still sovereign. 
He still controls what he allows to happen. Because he's waiting to uh, bring that final time when he sets things right, when he judges once and for all and gets rid of evil once and for all, because that day hasn't come, we still have evil in this world and there still is harm and hurt and pain. These things still exist. God uses these things for his own purposes. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. These things don't originate with God. He doesn't create them. But he controls what he allows as he wills for his good and loving purposes in our lives. Even evil must obey his command. But the bottom line is God is allowing this locust to devastate. He's allowing that, uh, that illness in your life. He's allowing your marriage to fall apart. He's allowing that emotional devastation. But why? Because He wants us. Because He loves us so much. And He knows that we can only be satisfied with intimacy with Him. Nothing else will ever satisfy us. You see, He wants... To, to, to interrupt our two-track lives and bring them together, that relationship with God and that everyday life, so that we're living our everyday life with Him. And it's these disasters that stop us and force us to face the reality that this two-track life isn't working. It can't handle the strain. In fact, not only that, it's been bleeding us dry. It's, it, it, it's been robbing us of our, our joy been destroying us and killing us. And God loves us enough to stop us, to to stage an intervention, to force us to look at that, to make some decisions, to make some choices. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that bad things are happening in your life because you're sinning. That may be true. Sin does have consequences. But Jesus is very clear that that equation doesn't always hold. That's not always what's going on. God gets very angry at Job's friends when they insist that must be what's going on, when it's not. I'm also not saying that if, if you walk with God, that uh, all your problems will go away, that you won't have heartaches and problems. And we know that's not true. Peter tells us in First Peter that when you walk close to God, you suffer a lot. See, just the opposite is true. When we walk close to God, we are walking in harm's way and we suffer. But it doesn't empty your life out. It doesn't dry your life up, rob you of all your joy. See, what I'm saying is that these crises, these times of great distress are opportunities for us to stop and to take a look And to make a decision, to choose between the options. We're at a crossroads where we have to decide. Well, what are our options? One option is to curse God and die. It's a very popular option, even among Christians. And when we see that he's at the head of that attacking army, that he's the one coming at us, we fight. We fight him. 
And if we can't beat him, at least we can keep him from winning. We withdraw, we retreat into to bitterness and despair and faithlessness and cynicism. We keep God in a nice little box for Sunday morning and protect the rest of our lives, try to protect the rest of our lives from this invading army. What we do is we curse God and we die spiritually and emotionally and relationally. But why do we do this? Because deep down, we look at God as, as God the harsh, God the heartless, God the merciless. That's not God. Listen to how Joel describes this same God that he sees at the head of that army of locusts. Starting verse 13. He says, Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and have pity and leave a blessing behind. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. See, that's who God is. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. That means overflowing with love. He loves to give. He loves to bless and to delight. That's who he is. You see, the alternative to cursing God and dying is turning to this God and rending your heart. Now, what does it mean to rend your heart? Well, that's real simple. It just means to tear it open. Tear your heart open and expose what's there. Expose the hurt that is there, the fear that lives there, the distrust that is lurking there. Tear your heart open. And look at the hurt, how people have let you down. How little you trust God, because no one has ever loved you like He says He does. How how you avoid Him, because you're afraid that He will disappoint you like everyone else has. Tear your heart open, let all of this garbage spill out. Pour it out before Him. He's not going to judge you. He's not going to reject you. He is compassionate. He's going to feel for you. He knows it's there. He knows how you got that way. Psalm 103 says, He knows how you were formed. He knows how you got the way you are. He's not going to be shocked by your shame, by your sin. In fact, as you open your heart before Him, He removes that sin as far as the east is from the west. He knows it's in there. He's known all along it's in there. He's just been waiting for you to let him at it. To open your heart and let him in. And when you do, again, you find that he is compassionate. He's not harsh. He's not merciless. He's not heartless. He's gentle, kind, loving. See, he corners you out of his love. Because He wants to show you that love. He wants to heal you. He wants to show you His compassion. He longs to be gracious to you. There's nothing more important in your life than this reality. Joel goes on. 
He says, bring the little children, bring the nursing babies. This is more important than nursing your baby. He says, get the bridegroom out of the bride cha- the bridal chamber. This is worth interrupting his wedding night for. There is no higher priority. There is nothing in your life, in your schedule, in your agendas more important than coming before God, opening your heart before Him, pouring it out before Him. Now's the time. And when we do this, when we lay our heart open before God, when we turn to Him in the depth of our being, not just in some religious ritual, but at the core of our hearts, He restores us. Starting in verse 19, he says, The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain and new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn among the nations. I will drive this army of locusts, this northern army, far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land, with its front columns going into the eastern sea, and those in the rear falling into the western sea, and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, O land. Be glad and have joy. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, O wild animals. For the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Have joy in the Lord your God. For he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will restore for you the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts and the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. You can hear his joy in giving joy, in giving generously. You know, the, the, <clears throat> the bounty, the rains, the eating till you're full. These are all pictures of restoring the joy, the satisfaction, the the refreshment, the peace in life. Again, we know that this doesn't mean that a Christian won't have heartache. We'll have heartaches. We'll go through tough times. People will reject us. We'll see people that we love hurting themselves and hurting others. We'll go through illness and financial difficulty. Being restored does not insulate us from these things. But what God does is gives us joy in the midst of these things. He gives us satisfaction and refreshment and peace. I've got a friend in this body who several years ago lost his job. He was devastated. It's the only job he had ever had. It wiped him out. But as he turned to God... Poured his heart out before God. Poured his fears, his confusion, his hurt, his anger at God. Begin to see some of his sinful patterns. And laid all of these out before God. God restored to him his joy and his peace. And his, his confidence in God's loving sovereignty. He's got another job now. 
But the joy and the peace came long before the new job. Now there's one more uh, step that I want to point out in Joel before we leave Joel. Let me trace real briefly where we've come. We started off with recognition. Let me use R's here. Recognition. This is one of those mnemonic devices you learn at these seminars. There was recognition. Where you recognize that the locusts have come. The joy is gone. It's not working. Then there's repentance. To repent means to turn. To turn toward God. To tear your heart open in front of Him and before Him and pour it out. Then comes restoration. As we do that, as we open our lives to Him, as we move into intimacy with Him, He restores the joy of our salvation. That leads to the fourth step. Revolution. I didn't know whether to call this one revolution or revelation because there's a lot of both in it. This is chapter 2, 28 through 32. This is a, a fascinating uh, section because it, uh, in the Hebrew, this is a chapter by itself. Uh, I got real confused as I was going back and forth between my Hebrew Bible and my English Bible because it was different uh, for some reason. And I have no idea the reason. Uh, in the English, they uh, leave 28 through 32 as part of chapter 2. In the Hebrew, that's chapter 3, and then chapter 3 is chapter 4. But like I said, this is a fascinating section. This is a section that Peter quotes in Acts 2 when he's talking about the ministry of the new church. God starts by saying, Afterward, after people have turned to me and opened their hearts before me and I've restored, I've revived their joy, then I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Now what's going on here? In ancient Israel, God would choose one individual, a prophet from among the nation. And God would have this special relationship with this man. God would tell him what he was going to do. And then God would pour his spirit out on this person. To, to accomplish what God was telling him to do and to say what God had told him to say. What Joel is talking about here is God having that kind of relationship, doing that with everyone who turns to him and opens themselves up to intimacy with God. God is going to have that special relationship, regardless of your sex or your age or your social status. God is going to have that relationship with you. And he's going, to, he's going to tell you, to show you, give you dreams and visions for what he's going to accomplish in this world. And he's going to pour his spirit out to accomplish these things. You see, after we turn to him and open our hearts to him, and in the midst of that intimate relationship, we discover his, his, his grace, his, his uh, compassion. And then out of, out of that joy that we find in that relationship, we begin to look for ministry, for ways to serve others. And God pours His Spirit out on us and we begin to have an effect on others. But the sequence is important. You don't look for ministry because 
the joy is gone in your life. You look for God when the locusts have come. You turn to Him and you open your heart before Him. And then as you discover His love, His compassion, His gentleness, then in the midst of that intimacy, that joy, that peace that you find there, then you turn your attention out in gratitude and in love to minister to others. And He gives you dreams and visions for what He's going to do. And He pours His Spirit out on you to accomplish great things. This is exciting stuff. This is exactly what I'm hoping for this church. That we as individuals and as a church would recognize when the locusts have come. We would face it. When the, when the emptiness has come, that we would deal with that. We would look at it and we would turn to God and we would tear our hearts open. Discover His love and His compassion. And then coming from the joy, the peace that comes from that intimacy with God, then we would turn outward. We would dream dreams for what God wants to do in this body and in this community. We would see visions for what He wants to do to, to spread the word of His name. We get excited that God would give you an excitement about reaching people. Maybe it's it's with somebody or something that's already going on within this body. Maybe the vision God's given you is for high school kids. Well, join the high school staff. Or or, or maybe it's for younger kids. Well, join a a Sunday school team. And if nothing, uh, if, if what God's exciting you about isn't already happening in this church, go. Join an organization where it is. Go with Young Life or with Love, Inc. or or the Refugee Center. And if nobody's doing what God's exciting you about, the, the dreams He's given you, the visions He's given you, start a new one. Do a new thing. Let's see God unleash this body. Let's see God shake the world. Turn it upside down. Let's see God use us to proclaim the name of Jesus so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's deepest desire. Remember, it all starts with facing when the locusts have come. And then believing, really believing, that God is the same today as Joel described him 3,000 years ago. He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, overflowing in love. Turn to Him and He will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. This morning we're going to be celebrating communion together, which is very appropriate because Paul tells us that uh, communion is a time to uh, examine ourselves. So I'd like you to do that this morning. Examine your life. Have the locusts come? Is the joy gone? Are you still trying to live that two-track life? Your relationship with God over here and your daily life over here. Well, look at that. Ask yourself, is it really working? Are you bleeding to death? Is your joy disappearing? And think about who God is. His compassion, His desire to be intimate with you. Now, I realize God loves you enough to interrupt that two-track life, but it doesn't have to be through a disaster. It could be right now as you respond to His Word. Well, Bill and Susie are going to sing, or are going to lead us in some singing. But let me ask you to think about these things. Let me ask you to make an appointment with God. You may not 
be able to do it right here, right now. Make an appointment for this afternoon. There's nothing more important. And if God's putting his finger on your heart, do it right now. Let the people around you sing. You talk to him.